Welcome to the NCAST Monthly Regulatory Brief. I'm Aileen McDonough, your host and director of content marketing at NContracts. In this podcast, our compliance team provides an overview and analysis of the latest regulatory changes for financial institutions, along with info on trends to help you keep up with the rapidly evolving nature of compliance. Let's get started. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of the NCAST Reg Brief. I am Stephanie Lyon, and joining me today is Robert Brosh and Cheryl Grizzard. We're all part of the content team here at NContracts that ensures you get the most up-to-date notifications on regulatory changes, guidance, news, and things that you need to know for your financial institution. Today, we had a whole lot of material to go through, so we had to be extra selective for the month of March because our regulators and the industry was quite active, and that is unfortunately not an April Fool's joke. So we do have a lot to get through, and we're going to start with matters affecting everyone in the industry. And on that front, we're going to start with a new piece of legislation, and Robert has all of the impact of that legislation for your institutions, even though the name Consolidated Appropriations Act doesn't sound like it would be very applicable, but turns out what it is. So Robert, what's going on there? That's right, Steph. New year, new Consolidated Appropriations Act. Uh, Hopefully the 1,200 pages of this omnibus bill didn't scare you away, nor like Stephanie alluded to, the generic summary deceive you from thinking that is applicable to the financial services industry. Hidden within are a few gems of legislation that are very important to banks, credit unions, and mortgage companies. And we'll start with one that is applicable to all financial entities, and that is the Adjustable Interest Rate Act. We've been talking LIBOR, LIBOR, LIBOR for months on end, right? And this piece of legislation is finally going to address those contracts that don't have any fallback language that are you that use LIBOR as the index rate for the contract. And so important within this is mentioned that the Federal Reserve will come up with a replacement rate, such as the secured overnight financing rate. There's also provisions in there uh, prohibiting liability for you know, you as the lenders for not having fallback language within that contract. And then it's also important to note that you can utilize a different index rate for those existing contracts, as long as it's one that you and a borrower come up with together and agree to. Additionally, uh, applicable to our depository institutions, we do have funding for different, different funds, right? So we have our NCUA's Community Development Revolving Loan Fund. It was appropriated $1.5 million. And then we also have the $295 million that was allocated to the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund. And then one more big piece here for our credit unions, that is the Credit Union Governance Modernization Act. CUGMA is the acronym, and it is not an appealing acronym at all. Uh, But what CUGMA does is it allows federal credit unions uh, to adopt a streamlined expulsion process to remove members for cause, right? If you're a credit union, you know that it is very hard right now to expel uh, one of your members. And so this allows you to do so as long as you adopt policies and have them approved by your board. And then you also have to give those members an appeals process to uh, you know, appeal an expulsion. 
And so uh, the uh, policy and this the ENCUGMA actually has to be adopted on a higher level by the National Credit Union Administration by September 2023 at the latest. And so it'll definitely be something that we pay attention to and, and see how it progresses in terms of whether or not credit unions are taking advantage of this for-cause and streamlined approach to expelling members. Well, Robert, that is a lot that was hidden in that bill, so I appreciate your analysis on it. We're going to move on to unfair and deceptive and abusive acts and practices, of course, UDAP. That has been on the news, that has been in the regulators' forefront all this year and last year. And Cheryl is going to tell us what is going on with UDAP. That's right, Stephanie. CFPB recently made updates to its examination manual on the section related to UDAP. It is now treating discrimination as an unfair practice in connection with all financial products and services and not just those involving credit products. Now, this is a huge change because historically, the Fair Housing Act, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, and similar laws have provided relief to consumers for mortgage-related products and other credit products. The updates to the manual will serve as guidance to financial institutions and other entities that are subject to the ECFPB's authority. So these institutions will want to make sure that your policies and procedures are updated and that there's a process in place to prevent discrimination. And you wanna make sure that your compliance program has a process in place to allow for monitoring in all decisions that are connected to the products and services that you offer. And that the processes um, also allow for you to take any sort of corrective actions to address any potential UDAP or discrimination concerns. The CFPP also issued a compliance bulletin encouraging consumer reviews about their opinions on financial products and services. It prohibits institutions from preventing consumers from leaving their honest reviews of products, as this would be considered an unfair or deceptive act under the Consumer Financial Protection Act. The bulletin gave examples of what it would consider unlawful practices, and some of those examples including it included using contractual gag clauses, using fake reviews, and even suppressing some reviews or manipulating the reviews. CFPB issued a strong warning to financial institutions, making sure that they their customer view processes and practices comply with all applicable laws and that any violations will be subject to civil penalties and other legal consequences. So CFPB is not playing any games around you that. They, they stopped playing games for a little bit now. And talking about unfair and deceptive acts and practices, we are going to move down to appraisal bias, where I get to share with you what the PAVE task force has been up to. What is the PAVE Act task force? Well, the PAVE Task Force is made up of around 13 federal agencies, as well as some of the GSEs. Those are the government-sponsored enterprises like Freddie and Fannie. And their action plan here is to take a look at what's going on with appraisal bias across the industry. And what they've discovered is a lot of studies out there that do demonstrate how having any discrimination in the appraisal process can have a huge detrimental effect on generational wealth building for people of color, people of different descents, minority groups, 
Um, something that really shocked me personally for when I saw this specific study was that houses in predominantly Black neighborhoods were consistently rated to be of lower value than those in predominantly white neighborhoods, even when you looked at the data and saw the age of the home, how well it was maintained, the size, and things that would talk about the actual cost and value of that property. When you naturalized all of those things together, you would still see that huge gap that accounted for almost half of the cost of it, the value of that home. So we also have a lot of stories out there. We reported on one where Chase was involved and a borrower actually tried to get a refinance loan through Chase. They were declined because the appraisal came in too low. What the borrower did next is quite shocking. So she decided, you know, I believe there's bias in this appraisal process. I'm going to remove any pictures of my family. They were a black family and they took all of those things that would lead any appraisal to understand or know the race and what kind of family there were from their home. And all of a sudden, a second appraisal came in much higher, and they were able to obtain a loan with a different financial institution. So these are the types of examples that unfortunately will lead your institution to be part of um, the news and the problem of appraisal bias. It is alive and well out there. And so what can you do and what can you take away from the PAVE task force and their action plan on how they want to revamp appraisals? Well, we do have a blog out there that you can find in our insights page and our blog, and it has seven recommendations for how your institution can protect itself against biased appraisals. Those things or those tips and tricks you'll find there are everything from ensuring the appraisers are educated, that they have the training to understand the Fair Housing Act that they know what discrimination looks like. It also asks that your institution itself review some of the keywords and phrases that you could find in free for, for flow narratives that are found in the appraisal itself. Some of those narratives have very specific discriminatory language in them that you could easily locate and determine if you even want to utilize that appraisal in the first place. So those are some of the takeaways for financial institutions. But this task force is already very active and their recommendations sparked Chairwoman Maxine Waters to actually put out a piece of legislation that she wants to be taken through that legislative process that can take forever. So this is just the first step, but it is all about how to improve appraisals and valuations to remove that bias. So we are already feeling the effects of this task force. And I definitely believe we're going to see it not just on the legislative front, but also in the examination of these appraisers and your financial institution as well. We're going to move on into continuing issues that affect financial institutions. This one is still on mortgage lending, but we're going to shift our view to mortgage servicing. And we're going to start on the circuit courts, if I'm not wrong, Cheryl. You're correct. The issue in this case, Stephanie, is centered around what qualifies as a qualified written request or QWR under the Real Estate Settlement and Procedures Act in connection with mortgage servicing. Now, QWR is a correspondence from a borrower to a, a mortgage servicer asserting that the servicer has made some sort of error. Now, in this case, there were two plaintiffs that alleged that their mortgage servicer, that they sent letters to their mortgage servicer, Caliber Home Loans. The first plaintiff alleged that Caliber was, there was a discrepancy in the mortgage remaining on his home loan and that Caliber was reporting late payments 
to credit reporting agencies, which resulted in his, uh, it had an, a negative effect on his credit and a negative effect on his employment. So the plaintiff sent a letter to Caliber asking them to correct their error. And despite his attempt in doing so, Caliber continued to report negatively on his credit report, arguing that the plaintiff's letter did not qualify as a QWR because the plaintiff did not specify a specific amount that he was disputing. The lower court agreed with Caliber. However, the Fourth Circuit Court disagreed, disagreed holding that where a written correspondence to a loan servicer provides sufficient information that identifies an account and an alleged servicing error, the correspondence would qualify as a QWR. Now, alternatively, the second plaintiff in this case fell behind on his mortgage payments to Caliber and Caliber began reporting to the credit reporting agencies. The plaintiff reached out to Caliber to try to arrange a loan modification. Caliber did initially deny the loan modification because there was a third party priority lien on the property. The plaintiff followed up with a letter to Caliber disputing this third party claim to his property and asking Caliber to correct the error. Now here, Caliber argued that his letter did not qualify as a QWR because it was dealing with a contractual issue and not a servicing error. The Fourth Circuit agreed with Caliber here. And this case brings up important guidance for mortgage, mortgage servicers who are trying to determine this issue. So the general rule is when a letter is challenging a loan modification, it will not qualify as a QWR because a loan modification is a contractual issue and it's not addressing any servicing matters. On the other hand, if a letter is generally identifying conflicting information regarding a payment, it will meet the requirements of a QWR. So just keep those things in mind. Thank you, Cheryl. We're going to stay with the litigation front for a little longer, but I do want to remind our listeners out there that the Fourth Circuit Court is not going to be applicable to all of you out there, only to certain states. So it's always important for you to know if you are in that Fourth Circuit purview or if you're outside of it. But generally, where one court does something, other courts can and tend to follow, but not in the case of the Department of Justice ADA website accessibility issue. So what are we talking about here? Well, many years ago, we have seen a sleuth of lawsuits and demand letter against financial institutions for, quote unquote, not having accessible websites. And where does this legal question come in? Well, the ADA under Title III says you have to have public accommodations that allow for people with disabilities to have equal enjoyment and utilization of public spaces. And public spaces have constituted to be financial institutions in the, in the past, like your branches and your lobbies. However, our demand letter started now getting a little bit more innovative and saying, Websites are public accommodations as well. That was an issue that was not settled by the law. There was really not a lot of guidance on this matter. So we did have to go into tremendous amount of litigation. And we saw decisions at the circuit level. We saw decisions in district courts. We saw differing opinions in the court of appeals. And ultimately, the Supreme Court, who should have just settled this matter for all of us, decided that they were not going to weigh in on the matter. And now where are we at? We have so many different opinions from the courts out there telling you whether they believe it is or it's not a public accommodation. But we're not going to worry about that legal question right now. 
What I want to tell you is that finally, after many, many years and over 140 letters from disability groups across the country, the Department of Justice or the DOJ has issued the guidance that the industry has been so patiently waiting on to help us understand what it means to have barriers in your website. What kind of standards can we observe and do so that if we are trying to comply in good faith with the ADA and trying to make our websites accessible, you're actually, in fact, working to do the goal in the right way. And so this guidance is gold for your institution because this is not a legal topic that you can take your thumb off the pulse yet. This is something you still have to be watching out for because the man letters keep trickling in. And we're assuming that if you haven't had a review of your website yet to determine if it's accessible. Right now, you have the best guidance to go ahead and start testing it or to go with a consulting firm or someone that can help you test your website. The other thing you need to consider here is if you don't even have any plans to make your website accessible, you may want to put that into 2022 plans because now that we have a little bit more comprehensive guidance from the DOJ, these groups are going to know exactly what to look forward to in your website so that they can keep putting these demand letters out there for you. So there's a lot of risk in this space and at least we have some guidance, but you need to take action to protect your institution and make sure your website is accessible if you feel like you want to settle that legal question or you want to go ahead and take the risk of hoping that the courts keep finding that they're not part of a public accommodation. But regardless of how you see that legal question, I want to say if you're serving your communities and you have the desire to make sure your products and services and online banking channels are accessible to everyone, this is something you should be looking into. We're going to move on to issues affecting our depository institutions. And we're going to start again with some case law and some state law where Cheryl is going to let us know what's going on in Mississippi and mergers and acquisitions. Lily Stephanie, Mississippi's governor signed a new law that will only allow FDIC insured financial institutions to acquire or merge with Mississippi state chartered banks. Now, this means that credit unions in Mississippi cannot buy state chartered banks. This could be a significant trend as other states, if other states follow this pattern, because credit unions have been actively pursuing banks lately, which is disturbing for most banks in the banking industry because they feel that credit unions already have an unfair advantage because they don't have to pay taxes. And speaking of bank mergers, uh, the FDIC issued a request for information related to the Bank Merger Act. The FDIC is requesting comments on the effectiveness of its current rules and regulations that apply to bank mergers between one or more insured depository institutions or between insured and uninsured depository institutions. They're trying to determine how effective the existing framework is in meeting the requirements under the framework because there've been a number of change in the banking industry, including the disappearance of a lot of the smaller banks and um, more, the increase in the number of larger banks. And many of you may remember the weird, awkward drama between the CFP director, CFPB director Rohit Chopra and the then chair Jenna McWilliams after the CFPB issued a joint statement claiming that the FDIC had approved the RFI related to the Bank Merger Act on its website, but the same day, the FDIC 
said they did not approve <laughs> the RFI. So now that Ms. McWilliams has resigned, it appears that maybe Mr. Chopra has prevailed on this issue. <laughs> in any event, institutions that are interested in weighing in on this topic ha will have until the end of May to submit their comments. Thank you uh, for that, Cheryl. And it's funny because it's not Bridgerton worthy drama yet, but that is definitely a lot to, to unpack there. We're going to move on with a civil monetary penalty affecting the, the banking industry, honestly. And the reason we wanted to talk about this is there's always a lesson to learn when it comes to someone else getting in trouble because you don't want to be committing the same mistakes that other financial institutions are doing. And the one I want to talk about is the USAA $160 million penalty for their Bank Secrecy Act anti-money laundering program deficiencies. And the USAA has been in the news quite a little bit recently, just two years ago. Ago, they were on the news for an 80 million civil monetary penalty they had to pay because of other compliance deficiencies and they were publicly downgraded for their Community Reinvestment Act rating. So again, it seems like this is a financial institution that is growing tremendously, but has not put in place the appropriate compliance and risk programs that they need to have for the asset size, the complexity, the products and the services they're offering across the board. So let's take a little bit of time to just unpack the BSA AML deficiencies here. Again, it's not a surprise to this financial institution either, because three years ago, they were put on notice by the regulators that their programs were deficient. And at that time, they said to the regulators, in this case, the OCC, that they were going to try to bring their program up to what they should be in the first place, depending on the level of risk that they already have for BSA AML. And what they promised to do was improve their transaction monitoring, bring in hundreds of new staffers for their financial crimes unit so that they could review all of the amount of suspicious activity that was being triggered. They also thought about the oversight that they should bring in. So having a committee of board members to review their policies or procedures or programs generally. And if you are guessing, hey, did they actually do those things? The, the answer is no, because now we're talking about it today with $160 million behind these deficiencies and failures. And so what can we take away as an industry from this civil enforcement or penalty? I would say to you a couple of things. One, if you have a BSA program that is deemed to be acceptable today, right now, I want you to remember that your level of risk is ever-changing. The level of risk, not just internally that you're facing by the products and services you're choosing, but it's changing because the international landscape and national landscapes change all the time too. If you look at what's going on in Ukraine, if you look at other conflicts around the world, this is all going to affect your BSA, your AML, and your OFAC programs and the level of risk you're undertaking. So it's essential that you don't just sleep on your risk assessment, that you continually update it, and that you understand that what's applicable and acceptable for you today might not be what's acceptable for you tomorrow if you're engaging in merger and acquisition activity, like Cheryl mentioned above or if you're engaging in offering crypto services, or you wanna go into marijuana banking, whatever it is that you're trying to do, product services, size, complexity, customers that you have, maybe you're serving people all around the world like USAA is, that means you have to keep investing in your compliance and risk programs so that you can appropriately serve your consumers and you can protect your institution. And that is the lesson learned here is USAA, has been asleep in their wheel when it comes to compliance and risk generally. And it is time for this giant national bank 
to put in place the appropriate internal control framework and compliance programs so that they don't have these kind of public enforcement actions against them on the same areas like BSA compliance and risk management. So we're going to move on to issues affecting only our banks. And we get to talk about investment regulators, the SEC and cybersecurity. So Robert, tell us a little bit about what's going on with the Securities and Exchange Commission and how it has to do with cyber. Thanks, Steph. First, I want to say real quick, you probably can kiss your campaign for the Supreme Court. Goodbye you know, to become a justice with calling them out for not taking on the ADA this, uh, guidance and, and not taking on that question. But yeah, so on the SEC front, right, SEC is proposing to enhance and standardize disclosures regarding uh, cybersecurity risk management, strategy, governance, and also incident reporting by those public companies that are subject to the Securities and Exchange Act of 1934. What's this mean? This means our banks and mortgage companies who are already subject to cyber incident reporting requirements under either the FTC or their primary federal uh, banking regulator, right? They may have additional requirements in place in the future because the SEC really believes that while those may protect the specific customers of those institutions, they don't necessarily protect the investors of those institutions. So what does this proposal require? It requires current reporting about material cybersecurity incidents. It also requires periodic disclosures about a registrant's policies, and it also requires procedures to identify and manage cybersecurity risks. You need to highlight management's role in implementing cybersecurity policies and procedures. And then the SEC also is looking to uh, figure out the board of directors of these institutions, what their cybersecurity expertise is and what their oversight is of that cybersecurity risk. And so before I hop into a little more cybersecurity computer incident related information for our banks, I do also want to emphasize that the SEC also released a proposed rule um, requiring their registrants to include certain climate related disclosures in their registration statements and their periodic reports, uh, including information about their climate related risks that are reasonably likely to have a material impact on their business. Right, this has been a hot topic, climate related risks for a while now. This proposal has finally come out. So I definitely recommend if you would be subject to it to go ahead and take a look and start evaluating how your institution operates in terms of lending to climate risk heavy industries. And so going back, you know, I'm hopping back around a little bit, but uh, going back to computer security incidents, as a reminder for our banks, uh, starting May 1st, 2022, the FRB, FDICs, and OCC's computer security incident notification rule goes into effect. Of note, this month, the FRB, FDIC, and OCC released alerts for their specific supervised institutions with those points of contact where those computer security incident notifications should go to. Definitely take a look. Definitely make sure that your systems have those in place because you don't want to get dinged. You don't want to have a violation, pay a penalty because you sent the notification to the wrong email address or the wrong department within, the, uh, within your federal primary banking regulator. Um, and, and it is you know, important to note here too, as Stephanie mentioned as well, right? The international environment is 
up in the air. There's a lot of turmoil going on, especially as it relates to Russia and Ukraine and all the blocking of Russian-related assets. Uh, it's important to make sure now more than ever that your cybersecurity and your risk assessments and your managing mitigation and identification of those risks are, are at the top, at the peak, as as um, comprehensive as you possibly can make them right now. And the NCUA also released a letter to their credit unions emphasizing the heightened risk because of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And so something for banks to certainly take into account there as well. Thank you, Robert. And I like your advice because anytime you can remove technical violations from the potential equation here, it does make your life a little bit easier. So take care to check mark those easy things so that you don't pique the regulator's interest and they want to start examining you a lot closer, which is exactly what happened to this new topic we're going to talk about. And this is for credit unions. And it is the SCRA or the Service Member Civil Relief Act. That is a law that has been around for quite a bit of time, I would say. It's not anything new. However, it is now very of interest to the regulators for some reason. NCUA said earlier this year that it is a supervisory priority for the agency to ensure that we're treating our service members well and that we are observing and respecting the laws and the regulations such as the SCRA and the Military Lending Act that are here to protect our service members and their family members in some cases as well. Unfortunately for our credit union in Virginia, they did not have the appropriate compliance program in place to observe SCRA requirements and they ended up violating this, this law in a couple of different ways. First, the law protects service members that are called back to active duty and gives them additional protections from having their vehicles repossessed without at least having a court order, as well as establishing a timeline in which that vehicle cannot be repossessed. This credit union in Virginia decided that they were going to go ahead and repossess the vehicle regardless, and they did so at a military base. So they had knowledge that the borrower they were taking the vehicle from actually is a military member. And unfortunately, they went ahead without respecting or observing the law. The second issue that was alleged in this lawsuit from the DOJ was that the credit union also did not limit the interest rate. So as a reminder, the SCRA does have a ceiling of 6% or a limit on 6% interest that you can charge service members in specific loans. And again, they were charging more than they should have been charging for that interest rate. And unfortunately, this did affect uh, a little bit over a dozen borrowers out there. And it, un it ended up costing this institution over $100,000 that they're going to have to pay both in penalties and restitution back to those members that were affected. So what are the takeaways here? It doesn't matter if you are a community size institution or if you are the size of Wells Fargo or USAA, as you can see, just harming 21 borrowers or harming you know, 100,000 borrowers can mean very severe penalties for your institution. And in this case, if you don't understand your compliance obligations or you ignore your compliance obligations, especially when NCUA has already told you this is a supervisory priority for them, you're likely to land in litigation, lawsuits, enforcement actions, and in the news. And this doesn't look good for anyone in the industry. It doesn't look good for this credit union in particularly. So something to take away out of this is sometimes it's hard to get people to believe when you're telling them that compliance matters. And I think it's very easy to showcase examples like this where you end up paying someone's full-time salary, $110,000 is 
one, two, or three staffers full-time salary here in, in restitution and penalties, that compliance is worth it. The ROI of compliance is here, and you can apparently see it in a lot of these civil monetary penalty actions. We're going to go ahead and talk about our next update under the NCUA, and that's going to be examinations because we're talking about supervisory priorities, so we might as well tell you how they're going to be examining you. Yeah, so Stephanie and I a few months ago gave an update on NCUA's 2022 supervisory priorities. Since that time, NCUA did propose a rule uh, revising which department of the NCUA is going to actually be in charge of your examinations. So what they're doing is they're revising the $10 billion asset threshold uh, used for assigning, like I said, which department is in charge of supervision of federally insured credit unions. And, and so the big one here is ONES, the Office of National Examinations and Supervision. Like I said, I'll reference them as ones, but under the proposal, federally insured credit unions with between 10 billion and 15 billion in total assets that are not currently supervised by ones will be supervised by their appropriate NCUA regional office. And then federally insured credit unions that are currently supervised by ones and those with more than 15 billion in assets uh, will continue to be supervised by ones. And just as a reminder, I feel like there's been a lot of reminders, a lot of references back to what we've talked about in previous NCAS. The S component of CAMELS uh, is effective for examinations starting on or after April 1st, 2022. Right, so hopefully by now you have integrated within to your capital and and prompt corrective action and, and all of that, all of your uh, different financial and, and risk-related assessments, the sensitivity to market risk component of CAMELS, and also the redefinition of that liquidity risk, that L component as well. As you can see, a lot to take in on all fronts here, federal, state, examination, supervision, it's a busy month and we expect the summer to be equally as active. So for all the topics we covered today and everything we didn't get to cover, which is plentiful out there, I remind you, you have your NCOMPLY solution that keeps up with all these regulatory changes, guidance, news pieces, and things of interest for our industry. On behalf of Robert, Cheryl, and myself, we wish you the best of luck keeping up to date with all of these changes. I know it's a lot. But you're doing a fantastic job out there. Happy April Fool's Day for those of you that celebrate such a terrible occasion. And we hope to see you again soon next month. That wraps up this month's NCAS Regulatory Brief, talking with our compliance experts about the latest regulatory changes you need to be aware of. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. And if you're not subscribed yet, we invite you to do so on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening.